And I do want you to turn. It's waking you up. I do want you to turn to the book of Romans. uh, But in this particular Sunday morning, we're going to turn ahead just a little bit to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And we're simply going to look at one verse of Scripture. We're going to look at the very last verse of Romans 4. Romans 4 verse 25. Speaking of Jesus, verse 25 says that Jesus was He who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. John Welch was a Scottish preacher who was known for his boldness in public and for his practice of prayer in private. In public, he did not hesitate to to call sin, sin. He did not hesitate to call people to faith and repentance towards Jesus Christ. In private, he was known for praying seven to eight hours a day. Sometimes alone, sometimes with his family. It included waking up each night in the middle of night between what he called his first sleep and his second sleep in order to have another hour of prayer. He was also well known for having been a thief before he was converted to Christ and for having married one of the daughters of John Knox. Well, there were often young men boarding in the Welch family's home in order to learn from this well-respected preacher. And there was one young man who had come to live with the Welch family in order to receive an education who became very dear to John Welch. And this young man became quite sick. The sickness worsened, and after some time, the young man died. The young man's body was taken out of the bed where it was laid, and, and it was, he was laid out on a pallet in the floor so that his body could be dressed appropriately for burial. For the first three hours after the young man's death, John Welch refused to leave the body. He stayed there by the body, overcome with his grief. Twelve hours after the boy's death, some of John Welch's friends came with a coffin in hand so that the boy's body could be placed in the coffin. The preacher, however, asked if they would not give him just some more time to be there with the body before they took the boy away. And so they granted that. They left and returned 12 hours later. But when they arrived again, they were urged by the preacher to to, to not yet bury the boy, to let him have more time with the body. They were not pleased with this. It had now been 24 hours since the boy had died. It was a, a very hot day, we are told. John Welch, however, earnestly pleaded for more time, and so they allowed him another 12 hours And then this happened again until it had been a full 48 hours since the young man had died. His body still there on the pallet in the floor of John Welch's home. And when John refused to let them take the body yet again, these men sensed that somehow he was holding out hope 
that the boy was really not dead. As if maybe he had become somehow comatose in such a way as to appear dead, but was not really dead. And so they asked him, they said, John, if we call some physicians to come and to, to, to check this young man out for us, would you agree to let us bury him? And he agreed to that. And so physicians came and were told that they brought these pinching objects and they would pinch different fleshy parts of the body. They would pinch hard in order to cause pain to try and bring the boy back if he was at all still alive. We're told that they even twisted a bowstring about his head with great force, but found no life in him. And they pronounced him truly dead. And the men were now determined to bury him. The Scottish preacher, however, begged them to just step into the room for a few more moments that he might have just a little longer with the boy. And this they were willing to do. We're told that John Welch fell down before the pallet and cried to the Lord with all his might, sometimes looking upon the dead body, sometimes looking towards the Lord, wrestling with God about this young man. And we're told that this continued till at length the dead youth opened his eyes and cried out to John Welch, Oh, sir, I am all whole but my head and my legs. And these were the places where he had been pinched by the doctors. When Mr. Welch saw that the young man was alive, he, he called to his friends and to their great astonishment, they saw the, the young man alive. The account goes on to say that this young man became known as Lord Castle Stewart of Ireland, a man you can read about in your history books. And he often told the story to others about his resurrection as a young man. Church, whether you believe that story or not, it does come from credible sources. Jesus Christ is not the only man who's ever risen from the dead. In the scriptures, we read of Elijah raising the Shumamite's son. Jesus raising Jairus' daughter and even his own friend Lazarus. We read of Paul resurrecting Eutychus who fell asleep during the sermon and fell out the window and died and Paul brought him back to life. And so if there have been other resurrections, what was so different about the resurrection of Jesus. How was His resurrection different from all these other resurrections that have taken place in history? Friends, Jesus' resurrection was very different. The very nature of His resurrection was very different. But I want us to note one main way that Jesus' resurrection was different from every other that has ever occurred in the history of the world. Namely, Romans 4, verse 25, Jesus was raised for our justification. Jesus' death and His resurrection did not just concern Him. It concerned us. We've been learning in recent weeks about this word justification. Everybody say justification. Justification, justification is the only way that we as sinners can be made right with our holy God. 
Justification is God declaring us righteous in His sight. Justification is God taking the righteousness of Jesus and imputing it to our account. And this verse says that Jesus' resurrection had something to do with that. He was raised for our justification. So, so what is the connection? How did Jesus getting up from the dead and coming out of that tomb, what does that have to do with, with our salvation and us being declared righteous before God? Well, that's what I want to try and explain this morning. And I hope that in doing so, it will cause the resurrection of Jesus to perhaps be even more precious to you than it has been in the past. This is a very glorious truth that Jesus was raised for our justification. Now to explain it, we need to go back to Adam and to the Garden of Eden. It, it begins with the words that God spoke to Adam. Those, those words that theologians now refer to as, as the covenant of works. This was the first covenant that God ever made with man. It's a covenant that is still in effect today. A couple years ago when we were in Genesis 2 together as a church, we spent some time looking at this passage. I want us just to look at it for a few moments. Turn with me to Genesis 2. I'm going to ask you to bear with me because it may not be immediately clear what does all this about Adam have to do with Jesus and the resurrection and our salvation. But I hope that at the end it will all sort of crystallize and, and become clear and you'll understand why the resurrection is so important to us as Christians. Let's read Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the word covenant is not found in these two verses, but this is a covenant. This is God revealing Himself to man and making a promise about how He is going to relate to man. God's promise basically takes this form. If Adam obeys, he will be blessed. If Adam disobeys, he will be cursed. If Adam obeys, there will be life. If Adam disobeys, there will be death. Hosea 6-7, Isaiah 24, 4-5, both look back at the fall in Genesis 2 and 3, and refer to it as the breaking of a covenant. So, what covenant? The one that God is establishing right here, what we call the covenant of works. Now, this covenant is divinely imposed. It's not as if God created Adam and then sat down with Adam at the bargaining table and they began to haggle over the terms of their relationship to one another. Nor does Adam come to God and say, God, let me tell you how we're going to relate to one another. Rather, God chooses to reveal Himself to Adam and then He declares to Adam, here is how our relationship will work. And Adam is immediately bound 
by what God declares. If he obeys, God will forever bless him beyond his wildest imagination. But if he disobeys, he will lose those blessings and he will receive judgment. God does not ask Adam if this is okay with him. Um, I know there are many in our day who think that they can stipulate the terms of their relationship to God. And I hope there's no one in here that is, that is thinking that way. Have you ever told God, look, here's what I've done, now you must accept me? Have you ever told God that He was unfair or unjust because He didn't treat you or treat someone else the way you thought you or they ought to be treated? The pot does not have the right to tell the potter what to do. Uh, I've used this illustration before. Imagine Jonathan, my seven-year-old son, coming to me and saying, Dad, let me tell you what our relationship is going to look like. Does he have the right to do that? No, he certainly does not. Because he is not the father. He is the son. He's seven years old. He does not have the knowledge that his father has or the wisdom, limited it is, that his father has, the understanding, the authority. And in a much more significant way, this is how it is with us and God. God creates us. God gives us life. And then we, with our teeny-weeny knowledge, wisdom, understanding, do not come to God and try to tell Him who has all wisdom and all knowledge and all understanding how things should work. No, God tells us how things should work. He says, I've made you. Here's the world. Here's how we're going to relate to one another. Now, why am I acting as if God made this covenant with us and not just to Adam? Well, because God did make this covenant with us when He was speaking to Adam. The Bible makes very clear that when Adam received this word from God, he received this word as the federal head of the human race. That is, he was our representative. Adam stood for us in the garden. Just as at the end of World War I, Woodrow Wilson signed the Treaty of Versailles to make peace with Germany. When he signed that treaty, the whole United States signed with him. That is, it wasn't just Woodrow Wilson who was now at peace with Germany. It was all of the citizens that Woodrow Wilson represented in that room when he signed. Well, in a very similar way, Adam, whose name means man, humanity, represented the human race in the Garden of Eden. When he received this covenant from God, he received it for all of us. Now, when you hear me say that God made man and imposed this covenant on us, you may perhaps begin to have negative thoughts about God, right? You may begin to think of God the way some people do, as an overbearing father who just doesn't want us to have any delight. And so he creates us and puts us into this world and says, here's what you must do, must do, must do, must do. And if you break any of this, I'm going to get you. Yet, friends, when we look at the terms of the covenant that God gave to Adam, we can only marvel at how magnificent they truly were. The terms of this covenant were absolutely splendid. God loved man and God blessed man with a covenant that was for his good and would have secured him eternal life forever. There were two parts to the covenant. If Adam would obey God, 
He would have the blessing of life. If he would not, he would lose that blessing and have death instead. Now, look at verse 16 with me again. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Don't jump to verse 17 and miss this. Right? We, we often focus on verse 17 and the prohibition that there's this one tree that Adam cannot eat from. But first you must note verse 16. Namely, God says to Adam, every other gift in the garden is yours. Every other tree is there for you to eat from. In, in the Hebrew, there's a real force to the words of verse 16. The ESV uses the word surely to try and get that force across. God wants Adam to enjoy paradise. God is telling Adam, delight in all that I've given you. Receive these gifts. Embrace these gifts. Love these gifts that I've given you in the Garden of Eden. He wants him to eat of the fruit of the trees. He wants him to drink from the rivers. He wants to enjoy the wife that he's going to give him. He wants him to, to play with the animals that he's going to put under his authority. He wants him to delight in the world that he's given him. God was not trying to keep Adam from pleasure. Rather, he calls Adam to go and to enjoy. All of this is received as a gift from God's hand, as an expression of His love. You see, God is the source of all true joy and all that is truly good. He is happy in and of Himself. He's filled with delight in His own good character. His holy delight in Himself overflows, and that's why you and I exist All creation is the delight of God in Himself overflowing into the work of His almighty hands. So you see, the problem isn't that God doesn't want people to be happy. The problem is that He doesn't want us to seek happiness apart from Him. And that's what verse 17 is about. Look at verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was placed in the garden to remind Adam that he was not God. God alone has full knowledge of good and evil. God alone is infinitely wise. It is good to have wisdom and to desire it. But the Bible tells us that we are to gain our knowledge by fearing God. The Bible tells us that we're to gain our wisdom by trusting God and learning from God. This tree was placed in the garden as a test. Would Adam depend on God, learn from God, gain wisdom and knowledge from God, or would he try and snatch it apart from God by taking it from the one other place where he thought he could get it? Would Adam be satisfied with the blessings that God had given him including the blessing of fellowshipping with God Himself, or would Adam try and make himself autonomous? Would Adam try and make himself like God, apart from God? Friends, we who are Christians are being taught by the Spirit to learn good from evil. In heaven, we will bear God's image In many ways, and one way that we're going to bear God's image in heaven is that we are going to share in his heavenly wisdom. 
I don't know if you and I will have infinite wisdom the way God has infinite wisdom in heaven, but we will certainly be marked by wisdom and knowledge in heaven. The issue here was not whether or not God wanted Adam to have wisdom. The issue was not whether or not God wanted Adam to know the knowledge of good from evil. God did want Adam to have those things, but he wanted him to have them from him, not from this tree. And so it was a test. Would Adam look to God and see every other blessing as a gift from God and depend on him and find his enjoyment in God? Or would he seek to strike out on his own to break the one thing that God had told him not to do? As you know, Adam failed the test. He did not continue to trust the God who had blessed him so tremendously. He tried to grasp from the one thing that God had kept from him. According to the terms of the covenant, Adam chose death. Physical death would come for Adam. Spiritual death came immediately. Adam lost paradise. He lost the presence of God. He lost the promise of God's blessings. His own soul became wicked and he became opposed to God. Friends, it's a whole lot worse than that. Because when Adam sinned, the Bible says we sinned. Humanity sinned. Our individualistic culture hates this concept. We may not like this, but the Bible says in no uncertain terms that Adam was our federal head in the garden and that when he rebelled against God, humanity rebelled against God. Adam was our representative in the covenant of works. His failure was our failure and his judgment was our judgment. That's why we are born with sinful natures under the condemnation of God. That's why we are born without hope in this world unless we have a Savior. We're born apart from God. We're born into a race of creatures who is at war with God. As we've seen for week after week after week in Romans, we do not by nature love God. We do not seek God. We do trample His commands and we deny that He is worthy of our love and that He is worthy of our obedience. The Bible says simply, we are born dead to God. The human race died spiritually in the garden. So here's the first point I want you to see and what it means that Christ was raised for our justification. Just stick with me. Adam, as the federal head of the human race, broke the covenant of works and brought the death that God had promised upon us all. Nod your head if you're with me. All right. What does this have to do with Jesus and the resurrection and our salvation? Several things. Number one, Jesus is the second Adam the federal head of all his people. We say it again. Jesus is the second Adam, or as Paul calls him, the last Adam, the federal head of all who trust in him. Just to give you an example, 1 Corinthians 15. We read from 1 Corinthians 15 earlier. This is just a little bit up in that passage. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a life became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
In other words, there were two Adams. There were two representatives of man before God. The first Adam represented all humanity and his sin was our sin. But now we are told the great news, there is a second Adam, Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is our righteousness if we will be united to him by faith. Listen to Paul say this very clearly in Romans 5, 18 and 19. Listen to this, Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, namely the act of Jesus and being obedient to, to his Father to the point of death on a cross, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the second Adam. Adam represented the human race. Jesus represented his church. Everyone who would ever believe on his name. Number two. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God in every way, fulfilling the covenant of works on our behalf. All that Adam failed to do, to trust God, to live in obedience to Him, Jesus did. Friends, when we say salvation is not by works, we're not saying that there's no works involved at all. God does require good works to get to heaven. He does require perfect obedience to get to heaven. But Jesus did all the work for us. That's why there's no works on our behalf. Jesus, in His 33 years of living, represented His people before God and every command God gave, every will of His Father was perfectly fulfilled by Christ. And as Christ was fulfilling every single command of His Father, He was fulfilling it not just for Himself, but as a representative of all who would believe on His name. He fulfilled all righteousness. He satisfied the demands of the covenant. Number three, this obedience meant much suffering and sacrifice on behalf of our Savior. This obedience meant much sacrifice and suffering on behalf of our Savior. I don't want you to think that this was just, oh, it was just easy, it was just automatic. Jesus just came and lived this perfect life and it was like nothing to him. Friends, he took on real humanity with all its frailties, all its dangers, all its temptations and trials. Think about what he did even to come represent us. He gave up the glories of heaven. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, a thing to be clung to, but rather he emptied himself, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2. Jesus' obedience for us 
meant not only that he lived a morally righteous life, it also meant that he submitted to God's purpose even when it meant much pain and much anguish and much agony for him. Jesus laid his life down and bore not only the beatings and the nails and the crown of thorns, but he bore the very wrath of God poured out on him as though he had committed every sin of every Christian who has ever lived or will ever live. This was Jesus being obedient for you. This was Jesus accomplishing all righteousness for you. This was Jesus trying to fix, not trying, truly fixing what Adam broke. This was Jesus fulfilling the covenant of works in which God said, obey me and I'll give you eternal life. So let me sum up this second point. Jesus, the second Adam, the federal head of his people, fulfilled the covenant works of works for his people. Adam represented all humanity, disobeyed, reaped death on the whole human race. Jesus Christ, representing his people, fully obeyed and reaped life for all his people. What does this have to do with the resurrection? And our salvation. Friends, what would have happened way back in Genesis 2 and 3 had Adam not failed the test? What if Adam had remained perfectly obedient to God? Most theologians believe, and I think rightly, that if Adam had gone a set length of time and remained faithful to God and obeyed God, he would have received true, eternal, abundant life. He would have been allowed to take from that tree called the tree of life. Genesis 3.22 makes clear that once Adam took from that tree, he would have eternal life. The Proverbs speak again and again about the tree of life as a picture of wisdom. Adam was created with the ability to either obey God or disobey God. But once Adam was granted to take from the tree of life, he would have been granted the wisdom that would have kept him from ever disobeying. Because friends, when we are wise, will we disobey God? Of course not. Anytime we have wisdom, we're going to do what God says. So once Adam had been granted by God to take from that tree, he would have been wise. And in his wisdom, he would have forever obeyed God. And in his forever obedience, he would have forever had life and blessing. This was the positive side of the covenant of works. Adam, trust me. Obey me. Keep my commandments. You will reap eternal life. Well, friends... If Jesus is the second Adam, as Paul says, and if Jesus did fulfill the commands of God for us, what should Jesus receive? Is God going to leave him dead in the grave after he just obeyed to the point of death? Of course not. Having completely obeyed his Father, To the point of death, God now raises Jesus from the dead and gives to him all the blessings of the covenant. Everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. All creation. 
all authority and power and on earth. Right? The keys to death and Hades. Everything. All power. All authority. Everything is given to Jesus Christ. The resurrection is Jesus entering His reward for having fulfilled God's purposes. For having been perfectly obedient. For having kept God's covenant. Jesus' resurrection was not like Lazarus' resurrection. was not like uh, Jairus' daughter's resurrection. It was not like the resurrection I talked about earlier. If Jesus had merely just been brought back from the dead, he would still have been mortal. And he would have died again. The way Lazarus died again. The way Jairus' daughter died again. When Jesus rose, his physical body had been transformed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we read it earlier, the perishable had put on the imperishable. The mortality had put on immortality. The Lord Jesus Christ was alive again, but more than that, He now had a glorified, perfected human body. And in that perfected human body, as well as glorified soul, He ascended to the right hand of God. For eternity past, he had been with God as God's divine son. But now he was with God as both divine and human. He is now not only the son of God with all power, he is also the son of man with all power. He is one of us. He has entered into his reward, into the eternal blessings. And dear friends, listen very carefully because this is where it gets really sweet. All of this he has done as our representative to obtain these things for us. Jesus did not need to come fulfill all righteousness for himself. Jesus was not a a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus came and fulfilled all righteousness for his bride, for all who would believe on him. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and exalted to the right hand of God, His Father was declaring that the covenant of works had been fully fulfilled. That the righteousness we need to be saved had been fully accomplished. When Jesus rose from the dead, it guaranteed that His people will one day rise from the dead with glorified bodies, able to walk new heavens and new earth. When Jesus ascended to be with His Father, it guaranteed that we too will be welcomed by God into His presence to be with Him forever. When Jesus was accepted by God into heaven, He was accepted as our head, as our representative. When God accepted Christ, He was accepting you. When God raised Christ, He was raising you. When God ascended Christ, He was ascending you. You see, Jonathan, Justin, I call myself Jonathan. Justin, that is, that is radical language. Why would you say that? Listen, listen to Paul. Say it. Ephesians 2. You should know this very well. But God, being rich in mercy, and He is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did He do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul, what are you talking about? God raised me up with Him. I wasn't there. I've never even been dead. Right? What are you talking about? I was raised with Christ. What do you mean I was ascended with Christ? What do you mean that we are sitting with Christ at the right hand of God? We're not sitting with Christ at the right hand of God. We're sitting here. What Paul means is that Jesus, as the second Adam, as your representative, as your Savior, has received all of these things as the guarantee that they will soon be yours. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the first fruits. Remember what the first fruits is? It's the first of the harvest, right? It guarantees, it's a sign of all that's about to come. Jesus was the first fruits and what happened to him, his resurrection, his glory, his reigning with God will now happen for us who believe on him as well. When Jesus Christ was raised, the righteousness you needed to be saved was being accepted by God. Jesus Christ was entering into his reward and all who belong to him share in that reward. As Christians, we reap the benefits of this even now, but we will experience it more fully in heaven. Jesus Christ was raised for our justification. Let me sum up that last point. When God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand, he was accepting and rewarding the perfect righteousness that is now ours. And so Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension, guarantees that we too, who believe on Jesus, are accepted by God and are living in our reward today. We will experience it more fully when we come to heaven. And isn't it funny that we call it a reward? <laughs> what did we do to earn this reward? Whose reward is it? It's Jesus' reward. But I guess if a wife marries a rich man, she gets to enjoy the money too. For we're the bride of Christ. He did all the work out of his love for us, and we reap the reward. Let me close with this. Dear Christian, listen carefully. What do you do when Satan or your own flesh or others begin to whisper to your soul, Things like this. God has not accepted you. God has not received you. You are not precious to Him. You are not loved by Him. He has rejected you because of your many sins. What do you say? What is your response? One thing that you can do is remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember that the resurrection proves that Jesus' righteousness that he accomplished during all his life has been accepted by God. The covenant of works has been fulfilled. Everything necessary for you to be forgiven has been accomplished. Jesus was not rejected. Jesus was not rejected. And if you are in Christ, you will not be rejected. 
Jesus was accepted. He was raised up. He was glorified. He was exalted. If you are in Christ, you will be raised up. You will be glorified. You will be exalted. And that will bring you joy on a Monday. If you think about those things. It will bring encouragement to your soul. Jesus was welcomed into eternal blessing. And dear friend, if you are in Christ, if you are one with Christ by faith, then so it is true of you. The resurrection is a reminder to believers that we have been accepted by God, that we are His loving children. Dear unbeliever, dear unbeliever, will you not turn to Christ? Will you not lay hold of Him by faith? so that His perfect work will be all that you need to be right with God. Jesus' fulfillment of the covenant of works made it possible for you to be offered the covenant of grace in which all that is required is not perfect obedience from you, but only one thing, that you see your need of Christ and that you trust Him. You trust Him. You rest on Him. You love Him cling to him. He came, he suffered, he lived, he died. He's shown his love for you. Will you trust him? I pray that you will. And if you will, then his resurrection is the guarantee that you are accepted before God and you will live in glory forever. Amen? Father, these are glorious truths. I pray that they would not come and bounce off our hearts as though our hearts were asphalt. 